Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John 5, 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that by your will alone you have provided us, you have brought us to this place. And may our hearts surrender to receive the treasure of truth you have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have made it. Today we wrap up our sermon series through the book of 1 John. Uh, so if you have your Bibles with you, let's go ahead and open up to 1 John chapter 5. Um, and I'm just going to summarize real quick because we don't have time to explain it all. So I'm going to summarize real quick the main point of the book of 1 John, which is simply... Live life in the know. That's the title of the whole series, right? Right there, live life. It was written that we may live life in the know. So I remember way back in the day when I bought my first house and I went uh, through the ordeal of house hunting, which is really one of the worst things that a person ever has to do. And so I did what anyone does when you're house hunting. I, I got a realtor and you start driving through all of creation visiting and checking out all sorts of houses. And, and if you've done this in the last 30 years, you know the drill. Most new developments, there's a, there's a home that's set up as the model home. right? So the, the, the builder sets one house aside, they stage it, they furnish it so that you can get a sense of what it would be like for one of their houses to be your home. right? So you can get a sense of the quality and the craftsmanship of that specific builder. So on this one particular day, as usual, we drive to this development we go straight to the model home, to park, we get in the car, we walk in, there's other people in the home. And, and so we got to start going through the whole ordeal of like checking things out and the realtors pointing out, oh, look at the, the crown molding. Oh, that's a neat feature. And so we're in there about five minutes, you know, and there's people in the house, the guy sitting on the couch watching TV. We're sitting there, we're checking all things out. Five minutes in, the guy on the couch finally looks at us and goes, can I help you? It was his house. It wasn't the model home. The whole family was sitting there watching us for five minutes walk around the house. So, <laughs> true story, true story. We were convinced we thought it was the model home. So, one minute we're walking around with confidence, looking in the bathrooms, like everywhere. It's, yeah, I know, right? We're walking with confidence about this. One minute. The next minute, we're walking out completely embarrassed, right? And we could have been shot. We thought we knew where we were. We thought we were in the model face. We were fooled. We were mistaken. We were completely, completely wrong. Now, it's one thing to be wrong about being in a model home when it's not. You'll get over the embarrassment, and it makes for a wonderful sermon illustration 20 years later, right? Who knows? You get over it. What's way worse is being wrong about eternal life. Those two words, eternal life, they're, they're biblical shorthand for being in right standing with God. What, what the term or that little phrase eternal life means is that the light of God, that his grace has shined into your heart. To have received eternal life means that God has forgiven you of each and every sin. 
to have received eternal life means that you are in this relationship with God, you're in right standing with God, all of your sin is forgiven, and in fact, you are freed from sin. Not just forgiven, but you're freed from its power and its dominion and its control over your life. You are freed from the eternal consequences of wrongdoing in this life if you've received eternal life. If you've received it, you are no longer under condemnation. You are a new creation. You are a brand new creature. And now God is your father and he's in heaven and he's guiding you and counseling you and mentoring you, leading you, protecting you, guiding you. And that's just here and now. If you've received eternal life, that means that there's an afterlife in which you will be welcomed into the very presence of God's glories forever and ever and ever. That's eternal life. That, to me, sounds like a good gig. That's a good place to be. And, folks, when it comes to eternal life, we cannot afford to be wrong. Like, we should never think that we have received eternal life if we haven't. And we should never think that we haven't if we have. And that's the value of the book of 1 John. It was given to us in order that we wouldn't be fooled into thinking that we have received it when we haven't. Or to think that we haven't when we have. God gave us 1 John that we may know the truth the truth about God and the truth about our relationship with God, the truth about whether or not we've received eternal life. He gave us the book that we may live in the know. So like I've stated throughout the series, and I'm sure you guys are like so glad it's over because it's the last time you have to hear this for a while. The book of 1 John was written in order to give us a series of spiritual diagnostic tests by which to evaluate your life in order to check and see whether or not, in fact, you have received eternal life. You guys are dreaming that statement. 17 weeks or however long it's been, you've been hearing it. But that's, that's the whole point of the book of John. So we've outlined it and preached it in a way like every week, like these, these verses are a test. Like test yourself verses according to these verses. So... We need to take full advantage of what is written to us in 1 John. We need to take full advantage of it before it's too late. Or to quote the uh, Compton poet who once waxed, you know, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. 90s people are with me. Each week we've taken a different test. Today we're taking the no test, K-N-O-W, the no test. So what we see in 1 John 5, 13 through 21 is that those who've received eternal life know that they've received eternal life because they know God experientially. All right? So this is not about knowing God academically. This isn't about knowing God and his facts or stories about God. It is those who know God experientially, relationally. It's a knowing that arises out of a personal relationship with God. And that is what we see here as we conclude this book of the Bible. Those who've received eternal life know that they have because they know God relationally experientially, personally. So here's the no test. Do you just simply know stuff about God or do you know him? And the difference couldn't be any further than the east is from the west. The difference is, not any, is no further than light is from darkness. It is that wide of a chasm. Do you just kind of know stuff, stories, facts, information, which... At the end of the day, if that's all we have, it doesn't amount to much. Or do you know him? So we're going to start here in verse 13, chapter 5. The apostle John is writing and he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I, that verse is fascinating and we've quoted it every week because that's kind of the, the thesis verse of the entire book. Like that, that's a purpose statement of the writing. So we've quoted it every week and I find it fascinating because the implication in that verse is that those who believe in the name of Jesus 
can actually enter into moments or seasons in which they don't know that they have eternal life. So it's quite possible, and I would argue common and normal, for a follower of Jesus, for a true believer, to have those moments and seasons of doubt, wondering, have I actually received eternal life? And I think that there are two main reasons why an actual believer will wrestle with doubt from time to time. And the first one is living in unrepentant sin. So I don't think it's possible to live with confidence that we have received eternal life if we're living in a way that is contradictory to the very life that God has given to us. So we all live in... North Carolina, it gets kind of warm here in the summer. Praise God for today, right? 60 degrees outside, yay, all right? But typically, this time of the year, July and August, uh, it's, it's misery, right? It's, it's 100 degrees and 1,000 degrees or humidity. It's just nuts right out there. So we know that if we go to the beach in July or in August in North Carolina, you better wear a bathing suit and you better sit under an umbrella. And then you can enjoy the beach that way, Right? Well, imagine you're out there at the beach, and there's this guy, and he's walking around, and he's got a ski bib on, and a snow coat, and ski boots, and gloves, and a toboggan. And he comes up to you, he goes, man, I'm hot. I'll tell you how you're going to reply to this character. You're all of a sudden going to turn into Fred Sanford. Like, you big dummy, of course you're hot. Of course you're hot. You want to cool off? Take that stuff off, right? Take the the bib off. Take the toboggan off. You can't enjoy the beach if you're wearing all of that superfluous stuff that's not needed. You're going to be miserable. That's how it is with sin. You can't feel confident that you've received eternal life if you're covered in sin. If you're just chunked, covered, smothered in it. If you're living Waffle House type sin in your life. You can't be comfortable. You can't be confident that you've received eternal life that way. So it has to be discarded. It has to be removed. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4 says, For when I kept silent. So here the psalmist is talking about keeping his sin secret. He's not talking about it to God, right? For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Like right there, the psalmist describes to us the emotional, psychological, spiritual turmoil that we feel when we're living in sin and we're trying to hide it from God and we're trying to keep it secret. It eats away at our very soul. It gnaws at your brain. It gnaws at your heart. You can't feel right. You can't feel normal. It will strip you absolutely of any joy and any peace and any joy and any strength that you would otherwise have if you weren't trying to keep all that ugliness just locked up and hidden. Like trying to be like Adam and Eve in in Genesis chapter 3 where they sinned and let's go hide. Let's go hide. You can't hide it. It's incongruent to the life that God has given to us to keep it silent, to keep it secret. It'll completely erode any confidence that you have that you've received eternal life. You're going to feel conflicted. So if you are a believer, and right now I'm speaking specifically to those in the room who are believers. You believe in the name of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer and you find yourself in a moment, whether right now or in a season of life right now, in which you are doubting whether or not you've received eternal life, I would invite you, ask you, urge you, evaluate your life. Is there some sin that you need to just come open and honest before God with? Just He already knows, and it's just eating away at you, so just confess it. To the Lord. Don't hide it from him anymore. Check to see if you have any sins that are that are there and you're kind of neglecting and ignoring. And I'll add this. It's not enough to confess it to God. And this is between you and the Lord, right? So it's not enough to just confess it and admit it. Oh, God, I did wrong. What the Bible calls us to ultimately is repentance. So Confess the sin and use it as an opportunity to turn away 
from the sin and to turn back to Christ. And it's as you turn back to Christ that sense and that assurance of having received eternal life will come flooding back in. See, it's the sin that is keeping a person from having the flood of confidence and assurance coming flood in. So just admit it. Confess it to God. He already knows, and he loves you anyway. So just for your own good and your own sake, confess it and repent of it. The second reason many of us will deal with doubt is because we lose sight of the gospel itself. So here's my story. I became a believer when I was 13 years old. And it was one of those, not everybody has these, but for me, I did have one of those mountaintop you know, conversion experiences, a cathartic moment, just the, like it's like heaven and, and earth just came together in my heart and it made sense. And I praise God and I, I gave my life over to him. I was 13. That was a long time ago. All right. A lot of hair ago. And I look over the course of my life before that salvation day and especially since, and I clearly see God's hand all over my my life i mean they, folks there i have done things when i was maybe not so much in high school but definitely college i have done things that should have absolutely shipwrecked destroyed my life there are things that i've done that should have ended my life and looking back god has spared me he's protected me he kept me safe like when i didn't even necessarily want to be safe So I've seen God very much at work in my life and keeping me safe. Throughout these last so many years, like I've seen actually God's miracles in this world. I mean, I I, I go back 25 years. My my mom had a brain aneurysm, which is like deadly and serious and awful. And so we rushed to the hospital and the doctors, they take an image of her brain and they say, there it is. There's the brain aneurysm. Uh, She will never be the same. She'll never speak. She won't be able to walk. She's going to be a different person, all that. The very next day, she's sitting up in her hospital bed eating jello. They take another scan. It's gone. Less than 24 hours. It's a medical anomaly. We can't explain it. Well, I agree, y'all. I agree that it's a medical anomaly. If by medical anomaly you mean that all-powerful God has healed my mother, that the supernatural power of God has intervened in a way so as to take away a brain aneurysm, if that's what you mean by brain anomaly, absolutely, amen, praise God, medical anomaly, right? But I've seen that, and there's been other situations that I've witnessed, and I've seen. I was there. I saw the images. I was in my 20s. I wasn't five. I knew, I knew what I was looking at. Amazing. I've seen God at work. Here's another little one. This is kind of fun. So when me and Jamie had our second kid, Ellie, the day that Ellie was born in the hospital, I said out loud to Jamie, I want our third kid to be born on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. God is my witness. Jamie's my witness. 21 months later, Emmett was born on, guess what? Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And we actually did pray for that. Not just me and Jamie, but we had our small group at the time praying for that. As silly and like trivial and odd as that may be, we, I, I said, I'm calling my shot, and I'm asking God to make good on it, and he did. That's pretty neat, right? How, If you know the story, we don't have time to get into it today. If you know the story how this church came about, this church is 30-plus years in the making, believe it. We're only five years old. It's three decades in the making. If you knew the story, you would be astonished. How we got into the building is an amazing story. How, how we're here, we started with eight families. You know, in little Anger, and you look around, and I, all the people, and all the families, and all the children, and stuff that's happening. Like, God's hand of, of sovereignty, and goodness, and favor is upon this church family. It's very clear. 
And so we've seen people come to faith. We're seeing people grow in their faith. We've seen marriages helped and saved. We've, we've seen people break addictions like God is at work in and through and among the people of Anthem Church. So I've seen God very much at work. And I can say, and I say this with all humility because it has nothing, nothing that I just said has anything to do with me. I say it in all humility, God's favor is clearly upon my life. God's favor is clearly upon my ministry and my church, right? And it's his church. You know what I mean, okay? I say that with all humility. I'm just here for the ride. I, I, just, got the, I just get a front row seat, like, the, like all of us, right? We get a front row seat at seeing the greater things and the new mercies of God take place in the life of the church. I have seen God at work in my life for decades, the miraculous, the amazing take place, and yet to this day I'll have moments of doubt. that awful? I still have moments of that. Like, despite all of that, I'll still have moments like, am I really saved? Like, have I really received eternal life? Because I'm a Christian 30 years by now, and so if I were really a Christian, why am I still struggling with this one sin for now the 10th, 20th, 30th year? Like, if I'm really a, a follower of Jesus, like, shouldn't I be more loving than I am? Why am I such a jerk? And so when I'm not careful, those thoughts come into my mind because I lose sight of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is very clearly stated in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will receive, will have eternal life. The gospel message of Jesus is quite simple. It's that we receive eternal life by God's promise, not by our spiritual performance. The gospel is a promise from God that says that if you trust in the name of Jesus, you will be saved. You will receive eternal life. It's not based on what we do. It is completely based on what Jesus did. This, it's a gift. This gift is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by our works. Period. That's the gospel. And so if I lose sight that it is a gift of God and start thinking that it might somehow be based upon me being perfect and great and wonderful all on my own, if I start losing that, then of course I'm not going to feel confidence about eternal life. Because I fail. I'm a sinner. So I must always gravitate back and remember the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel message. God has made a promise. If you believe in Jesus, you will receive eternal life. Period. Done. So to have experienced eternal life means that we are in a loving personal relationship with God and vital to experiencing that relationship in an ongoing way is that we keep short accounts with God and that we keep his grace before us at all times. So do you, can you say that you experience a relationship with God? Is it just facts and information and yeah, he's there and he's I don't really, he's kind of sort of this way, but I don't know him. Or do you actually, can you say that you have a relationship with him? Meaning, do you keep short accounts with God? Do you keep repentance always before you every day? Repenting, like turning away from sin, turning back to him, because that's relationship, right? Turning from sin back to him, back to him, back to him. And do you keep grace before you constantly preaching the gospel to yourself? Do you, do you do that remembering always grace, not my works, grace, not my work, not how good I am, work, it's, it's God's grace. Like, do you fight every day to remember that it's not based on how good you are, but how good he is? Those who've received eternal life know that they have because they're always repenting and because they're always remembering grace. And that's how we know that we have a relationship with him. That's how we know that we've received eternal life. That's the no test. Well, to wrap up the book here, 1 John concludes with three additional truths that are indicative of 
a relationship with God, that these three things must be true of a believer if we, in fact, have a relationship with God. And the first one is, has to do with prayer. So look at verses 14 and 15. It says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Those verses should completely blow your mind. They should overwhelm your heart. We pray to God. We make requests or petitions of God. He hears us, listens, and answers. Think about it. God listens to you. He hears you. I highly doubt that there's a single person in this room that cares so much about a little bacteria that you would stoop down to its level to listen to it and to hear what it has to say and to provide whatever it is that it asks for. None of us would do that for a bacteria, especially when most of them make us sick. Right? Like We just don't care enough. There's just too much of a chasm Maybe a puppy, but not a bacteria. Well, consider this. When compared to God, we're the same as a bacteria. Like, there's virtually, really, realistically, no difference between us and a bacteria when compared to the difference between us and God. Guess what? A bacteria and us are created. We're on the same level. God is creator. So we're created. God is creator. We're finite. God is infinite. We're mortal. God is eternal. We need six hours of sleep at night just to function in this day. God is all-powerful and created the universe. There is a massive difference, an infinite difference between us and God. And despite that gulf of difference between us and God, Hebrews 4, 16 says that we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need folks this whole prayer thing is a glorious mystery god almighty hears you now don't do this if you don't feel comfortable but if you're in the room and you are a believer if you believe in jesus i want us to all together out loud say this God hears me. One, two, three. God hears me. Let's do it one more time. God hears me. Do you believe that? Do you believe God hears you? Shocking. You should reach new levels of humility with that, folks. There's, There's new levels of gratitude. If you really believe that God Almighty hears what's on your heart and on your mind, it's shocking. Now, these verses don't teach us that God gives us everything that we ask for. It's stated very specifically in the verse. It has to be in accordance with His will. So what that means is that prayer is not a means by which to wrestle concessions from God as if simply by asking for them, he's going to give us something that he is not predetermined to give us. The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and teaches us to pray is a prayer that furthers the kingdom and the will of God. Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So just know this, as God's children, so if you are a believer, you're a child of God. As a child of God, you have freedom. You are free to ask God for whatever you want to ask for. You are free to, and you're not going to hurt God's feelings or offend him in some way, all right? 
you as a child, as a child, you can ask him anything. But the thing is, the only prayer request that you can have confidence that God will, in fact, respond to in the affirmative is those things that comply with his will. Those things that, that lay hold of his intentions and of his plans. Well, if that's the case, what's the point of praying? Like, if God is only going to give what he has predetermined to give, then why pray? Well, the reason we even ask that question to begin with is because we lose sight of what the purpose of prayer is. So I've got four little ones at my house. And they ask me for stuff all the time. All the time. Every day, all day. Daddy, 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 daddy. Mommy, mommy, mommy. mommy. Like, all day, asking for stuff. Can we have a donut? No, it's only 6 a.m. You know, like, well, my love for them is not displayed in me giving them whatever they ask for, is it? You know what? My love is shown to them in that they have permission to ask me. That's love. My love for them is that I listen to them. I incline my ear to them. They have an open audience, they can come to me anytime, all the time, and ask me whatever. See, my love is shown in that display toward them. I want to hear their heart. I want to hear their thoughts. I want to hear what they want, what they need, or what they think they want, and what they think they need. It doesn't matter. I want to hear, and I want them to feel freedom to ask that of me. My love is shown for them that I will only give them that which is for their good and that which actually conforms to the greater good of the G-Clan. The point of prayer is not getting what we want. The point of prayer is communing with God. That's the point. It's the privilege of us getting to share our heart and our minds with God. And is that not enough? Is that not? He doesn't, why should he even listen to us anyway? But the fact that he says, you can approach my throne of grace with confidence. Tell me, what do you want? What do you need? Where are you at? Is that not enough that God Almighty would even allow such a space for us to, to enter into? Like the, the grand response of God is not that he puts our prayer requests in the driver's seat. His grand response to us is that he listens. That he listens. The joy of our relationship with God isn't that he says yes to everything that we ask for, but that he invites us to draw near and to know him, to know the, the goodness of his presence the joy of prayer is that we know that he hears us, and folks, that's enough. There should be a calming and a peace that enters our heart just knowing that he hears us. The joy of prayer is that as we pray and speak to God and, and relate to him and hear from him, and our, our, our heart begins to line up with God's heart. We, we begin to have his thoughts and his desires and when as, as that happens, all of a sudden what we start asking for are the things that God wants to see happen. And so as that happens, guess what? We start to hear yes to our prayers. Yes. 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 Is that not good? Those who believe in Jesus know that we've received eternal life. And we know what prayer is for. We know that it's through prayer that we experience this thriving, ongoing, consistent, beautiful relationship with God. We know what it's for. So question one is, do you, do you pray? Do you even pray? When you pray, are you speaking at God? Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Or are you speaking to God as you will? How? Do you pray? And when you pray, how do you pray? Do you commune with him? Do you know that he listens, that he hears you? Do you know that in your soul? Those who know Jesus, those who believe in Jesus, enjoy a relationship with him through prayer. And that's how we know, how we receive confidence that we've received eternal life. So the second truth here at the end of 1 John that is indicative of anyone who has a relationship with him is in verse 18, which is a reference to our lifestyle. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not 
keep on sinning. So we've discussed this several times already because it comes up a lot in the book of 1 John. It doesn't mean that a Christian does not sin. What it means is that a follower of Jesus does not give themselves over to willful or habitual sin. We sin, we mess up, we stumble, we go off-roading, but then we're quick to, to auto-correct. We're, we're quick to co- correct course. And the reason why is that we understand that sin is frivolous. So the word frivolous means it's wasteful, like to lack seriousness. It's self-indulgent. Well, that's what sin is. Immorality, godlessness, disobedience to God, living in a way that doesn't conform to God's word, all of that is frivolous, it's wasteful, it lacks, it lacks seriousness. But we who are born of God, we don't live that way because it's not, it's not consistent with the life that he has given to us. So instead of being frivolous in our sin, we are faithful to Jesus. We're obedient to Christ. We follow his ways. We follow his word. And when we mess up, and we mess up constantly, and we mess up daily, when we mess up, we do what? We repent. We repent and turn back to Christ. This is who we are. We do not keep sinning, is what the verse says. Now, before anyone starts to think all high and mighty of themselves, like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a pretty good person. I don't, I don't keep on sinning as if, as if it's based upon how good you are as a person, how moral you are, or, or uh, how self-disciplined you are. You need to look at verse 18, which actually says there, He who was born of God protects us. That's a reference to Jesus. So the moment that we place our faith in Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Spirit of Christ. And it is His presence in us that allows us to keep God's commands. It is not on us, like wrestling through it, muscling through it. It is the Holy Spirit in us giving us the capacity, the empowerment in order to obey and live that kind of life. It's God's presence that keeps us from temptation. It's God's hand and work in our life that protects us from going ultimately off the rails. And so it's not just that Jesus protects us from ourselves, and we are our own worst enemy, our own sin nature. It's not just that Jesus protects us from ourselves, but also he protects us from, as those verses say, the evil one, which is a reference to the devil, a reference to him who prowls around trying to tempt us to live this frivolous wasteful, lack of seriousness, just vain, self-indulgent life. So verse 19 says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what the verse says is that someone who is a non-believer can't help but sin. There is this force, this forces of darkness in the world of evil that are at work, active, influencing, coercing, manipulating. Right, And it's very prevalent. And so those who are under that influence can't help but to sin. They have no choice. But we who are born of God, who've received eternal life, guess what? We've got a great shepherd who watches over our soul. And I'm pretty sure Jesus prayed in that prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one. So this is what Jesus does. He lights our path and he allows us, permits us, helps us, guides us by the hand, takes us so that we may walk down paths of righteousness. So we can evaluate our relationship with God by evaluating our relationship to sin. Those who believe in Jesus know they've received eternal life because we don't make it a habit. We don't give ourselves over to it. It is not our lifestyle. It does not identify us. We see God at work in us, conforming us to the image of his son. We see God at work in us, making us less sinful. We see God at work in us so that we reflect more the heart of Christ and his priorities and his agenda. We see God at work keeping us safe. And yes, we absolutely mess up constantly, but we don't stay. What the verse says is that we don't keep on sinning. We may sin, but we don't keep on sinning. We mess up, but we don't stay messed up. So I would invite you to honestly evaluate your heart. Evaluate your life. Or do you live a life of frivolity? Or do you live one of faithfulness to Jesus? Can you honestly say, 
I, I, have to, I do. I feel this sense of Jesus protecting me from myself, from temptation, from the world, from the evil one. I, I, I see that. He's steering me clear. Like, do you see that in your, in your life? Because that's how we who believe in Jesus enjoy a relationship with him. That's how we know that we have received eternal life. We see God protecting us. And the third thing, the last thing, the third truth that's indicative of a person who has a relationship with God is in verse 20, and it is the simplest one. We know that we have eternal life because we know Jesus. Because we know Jesus. He came from heaven to earth so that we may know him, is what the verse says. Just know this. The single most astonishing phrase that human lips could ever utter is, I know Jesus. The verse tells us he is true God. He is eternal life. He is sovereign creator over all things. He's sustainer of all things. The most glorious thing that you in this room could ever say, either today or in eternity from now, is, I know Jesus. To be able to say that truthfully and sincerely and honestly, I know Jesus is the most glorious, most beautiful, wonderful thing anyone could ever say. So do you know him? Do you know Christ? And I'm not asking, do you know facts about Jesus? I'm not asking you if you can quote me some story of Jesus from the Bible. Do you know him? Theologian J.I. Packer, he wrote this. He says, a little knowledge of, of God is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. It is way better to know just a little bit if it's a relational, experiential knowledge of God than to be able to quote every verse of the Bible and be able to spout and wax eloquent all sorts of theology and sound all lofty and stuff. If that is the extent of your knowing, it's of no good. What matters more is even just knowing Jesus just a little bit if it's real. And J.R. Packer did say there, One can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. You can know a lot of facts and still not know who he is. It says that one can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. You can know how to act and how to speak and how to be right in certain company. And it doesn't amount to anything if you personally in your heart do not know Jesus Christ. That's what matters, is actually knowing him. So that begs a question, like, how do you know that you know Jesus? And here's just a quick little way, I think, to evaluate. I think your heart needs to say amen to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider all of the things loss and worthless when compared to the surpassing value and worth and glory of who Jesus Christ is to me. See, those of us who know Jesus, we delight in Jesus. Those of us who know him, we know him as our treasure. He is our prize. What matters most to us above anything and everything in the world is Jesus. He is our everything. He's our center. He's our foundation. He's our goal. He's our joy. All all of us is found in him, and then we find him in us. It's a beautiful thing. We love him more than we love the things of the world, and that's why we gladly say, I consider all this stuff down here as pleasant and as nice as it may be. I count it lost when compared to the surpassing riches of who Jesus is. So how does a person get to that place? How does a person ever get to a place where they can honestly say, I count all things lost for the surpassing worth of Jesus? 
So I'll answer for myself. I was a sinner, condemned, unclean. Unclean. Deserving, deserving of eternal punishment from God. And then here comes Jesus. And he goes to a cross. And he took my sin. He took it upon himself. He took the punishment that I deserved. He took the death that should be mine to die. And on that cross, he paid for my sin. He paid the cost of my sin. I was on death row, literally. And then Jesus comes in and he opens the cell to my prison. Says, you're free to go. And he walked in. So that he could be executed and not me. where I should have stood and he gave his life and he died for me and they took his body off that cross and they wrapped it in grave clothes and they put his body in a tomb and folks on the third day he rose again proving that he is the son of God proving that he is God almighty proving that he had paid for my sin on the cross Proving that I am free from sin's power and its eternal consequences. All because of what he did on the cross for me. And now, as a believer of Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, guess what? I get to walk in the same power that raised him from the dead each and every day. And folks, this is not abstract theology. This is not academics. This is not myth. This is not wishful thinking. This is not superstition. This is truth. I know Jesus. I have experienced his hand in my life, his gentleness, his goodness, his kindness. I know his voice. I know his hand. I know his grace. I know his truth. I fail. I stumble. And he hasn't given up on me. And he hasn't quit on me. He hasn't discarded me. Even when I ran from him. He keeps pursuing me and seeking me, reaching to save me out of the very destruction that I would find myself in. I have found him to be the only source of light and of wisdom and of truth and of grace and of joy and of peace. And I know this to be true. I know Jesus. And me, along with anyone else who believes in Jesus and knows him, I promise you this. We say, I count all things lost. For the surpassing riches, worth, and value of Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Do you believe? Like this is, this is the no test as we wrap up our study of 1 John. It's the no test. Do you know him? Do you believe in him? Have you given your life to follow him who is good and who loves you? Have you given your life? Have you embraced his grace? Have you become a new creation in him? Are you on a new path? Have you received the light of his grace into your life? Have you? Have you repented of sin, sin in your life and that lifestyle and turned to him? Do you know him? There's not a person in this room that needs to be mistaken thinking that you're in the model home when you're not. There's not a person here that needs to be fooled or wrong, especially when it comes to this question of eternal life. This is what matters most. Believe, repent, give your life to Jesus. Know him. Speak to him. Listen to him. Pray to him. Repent. Remember the gospel every day. Every day walk in it. Every day walk in it. Grow in Christ. The Spirit leads you. Call God, Father, do you know Jesus? So let's respond. I ask you all to close your eyes and bow your heads.
And the praise team is going to lead us in a closing song. But as, as we conclude, not just this service, but our study of this book of the Bible. And we have wrestled through some difficult things, some, some hard things that the Bible tells us. But we started this all the way back, April 28th. And I'm just wondering, is anyone here living in the know? Are you more assured now that you know God and that you have received eternal life? If not, what's keeping you from it? Is it, is it that you've never actually said yes to the Lord? That you've never given your life to Him and accepted the grace that He provides? Because if, if that's the case, then you need to just right now where you are, say, Lord, Father, I give myself to you. Lord, I, I've been running, I've been lying, I've, I've known things about you, but I just realized I don't know you. So if that's you, you need to say yes to him. So just, and it's between you and the Lord and the privacy of your own heart. Do you need to believe today for the first time? Do you need to call out to Jesus, the Son of God, for salvation right now? And then there's those of us in the room who've been lacking assurance. Part of it is because we think it's based on how good we might be when it's not. That's a lie. The promise is it's all based on the goodness of God and His grace. So if your heart has been struggling with that, would you just right now trust God's promise? Whoever believes in His Son shall not perish but will receive eternal life. Will you trust that promise? You may be in here and, and you're wrestling with doubt only because there's a sin that you really need to repent of and do business with and confess it to God. Some of you are struggling with this because you really de devote no time to actually praying and communing with God. Whatever it is, just be honest right now with the Lord. Be honest with yourself. Have you received eternal life? Gracious Father, you are good and kind and merciful, compassionate, patient, slow to anger. You've given us an out. You've given us a way out of darkness. You sent your son to be the way, the truth, and the life. You sent your son to die on a cross to pay for our sins. You sent your son that we may have a new life, abundant, blessed, eternal life. And you say that it's for those who believe. It is those who trust. It is for those who have faith in your promise. So Lord, I pray now for those in the room who may be wrestling with this for the first time in a real way, Lord, I pray that they would say yes to you. And for all of us, Lord, all of us to live in the know, not doubting, knowing that you love us, that Jesus died for us, that our eternity is secure and assured, and that we have received the gift of life. All by grace, through faith, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.